Hi everyone. Hello. Hi everyone. It is lovely to see you all. It's very weird to be preaching in person in a space where I can see all of your faces. So hello. If you've not met me, as Jem said, I'm Rianne. Um, I've been around for a little while. Some of you may have met me. Um, and today we are continuing with our series in the book of Ruth. We're going to be looking at Ruth chapter 3. But just to start, I'm going to give you a quick recap. We weren't in this series last week, so some of you may have forgotten the story so far. So, so far, Ruth has followed her mother-in-law, Naomi, back to Bethlehem. They're both widows. Naomi's husband and Ruth's husband both died out in Moab, and they're all alone. Ruth went out to glean in the fields and ended up working in the fields of a man called Boaz. Boaz treated her kindly and made sure that she was safe and that she had plenty to eat. Naomi and Ruth are still alone, but at least they now have food. And if you were here a couple of weeks ago and heard the message from the lovely Jem, um, we learned that God didn't just provide them enough to eat, he provided them so much food, more than they could possibly eat. So these women are fed, they are no longer starving, but they are still alone. This morning we're looking at the next bit of Ruth's story, and we're going to be looking at how we respond to God's provision. What do the people in our story, Ruth, Boaz, and Naomi, do when they see God's provision? Just before we read it, I'm going to give you a little bit of a warning. This bit of the story is a little bit weird. If you've read the book of Ruth and know what's coming, you may know what I'm alluding to. But it's a very strange story. And it's one of those bits of the Old Testament that is incredibly easy to read and just think, oh, that, that doesn't make sense anymore. That was written for a time, a long time ago, to people with different values and traditions and customs. I don't get it, so I can skip it or just appreciate that it's kind of a funny story and move on. And I just want to let you know that's not what we're doing today. We're not just going to read it and then move on. This story is intentionally written to be vague. The author of this story has left it unclear as to what our characters are thinking, what Naomi, Ruth and Boaz are doing, why they're doing it. It's full of innuendo and double meaning. It's meant to be a bit confusing. Even the original audience, who are not quite sure who they are, wouldn't have just heard it and been like, get it, I'm with you. I know exactly what you are trying to say. So I just want to reassure you, if as we're reading it and as I'm speaking, you're not quite sure what's going on, that's kind of the point. We're not necessarily meant to understand every minor detail. This is a book in the Bible. It's scripture. It's given to us by God for our good. It's there to teach us and to show us something of who God is. And God doesn't always make the answer super obvious to us. He doesn't always make it easy. He could, but he chooses not to. He chooses to let us see that they are, these are three real people living real lives. They are imperfect. They make mistakes, but they are trying their best to live faithfully. And they might not know what their intentions are. I'm sure that we aren't always clear what our intentions are when we're doing something. So just keep that in mind as we read this. It's okay to not be sure and not have the right answer. So we're going to read, it's Ruth chapter 3, 1 to 13. I think it's going to come up on the screens, but if you want to turn to it, I'll give you a second. Okay, so. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, 
Should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she, that's Ruth, replied, all that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. I did warn you, it's a weird story. These are a strange series of events that is happening. There's a young widow sent by her mother-in-law to go and secretly visit a man in the night on a threshing floor. She gets there and hides, and when he's asleep, she uncovers his feet and lies down. He wakes up and finds her. She proposes. He says yes, but there's another man. It's, all, it's so dramatic. There's so much happening. I don't watch soaps, but this could definitely be the plot of a soap opera. There's just a lot going on. And it's so quick. It's such a short bit of the story. It's really, really hard to keep pace. It's worth remembering that originally this story would have been told to people. There would have been pauses in the story. We have the luxury of just being able to whip onto the next sentence and see what's going on. But there was so much suspense in this story. Who knows what's going to happen? So the passage starts with Naomi wanting more for Ruth. Presumably, they've now had a few weeks where there's been the harvest, they've been well-fed, they've been safe, they've been able to eat, thanks to Boaz's kindness and God's provision for them. But Naomi knows there's more to life than food. Them having enough to eat is not actually enough anymore. At the end of the day, they are both still widows, and Elimelech's line, that's Naomi's husband, is going to end with the two of them. So Naomi decides she is going to play matchmaker. You might have different views on how good matchmaking is as a thing. Maybe you have had incredible success. Your friends and loved ones have matched you with you know, the perfect guy or girl. You've had in incredible dates and moments where you've really connected someone with someone that your loved ones have chosen for you or introduced you to. Maybe you've had the opposite and you wonder why on earth your loved ones would think that you and this person would get along. I think matchmaking's a bit weird, not a, not a big fan. Um, 
but I'm sure it works for you. And if you were here and that's how you met your spouse, then congratulations. That's very exciting. Um, for the rest of us, I'm sure it's led to some slightly odd circumstances. But this matchmaking, I think we can all agree, is a bit weird. Remember, this is Naomi and Ruth is her daughter-in-law. The only reason they are connected is because Ruth married Naomi's son. And now Naomi is trying to set her up with another guy. It feels a bit weird. I feel like if that happened here, we might have some questions. But there are two things going on that might be helpful to just make it seem a little bit less weird. The first is that you need to know something of what's called the Leverite law. And this essentially is a law that says if a man dies without having children, his wife should marry his brother or kin. And then when that brother has a child with the wife, the son inherits the dead man's story. Is that me crackling or something else? Okay, cool. I'll just carry on. Um, so the, the son of the wife and the brother counts as the dead man's son and therefore inherits his name and his land. Doesn't really make sense to us because that's not how we see inheritance, but it's part of the, the promise that God gave to Abraham. God promised Abraham that his descendants would outnumber the, sand, the grains of sand. The, the people knew that there was a promise of family and of land, and that is what this law is protecting. It says that if a man dies, there is still a chance for his name and his land to continue and not to be lost in the people of Israel. So that is where Naomi is coming from, wanting to set Ruth up with another guy. And also, back then, it was pretty common for parents to set their children up. Arranged marriages were a thing. Naomi wasn't being some interfering mother-in-law. She wasn't just trying to manipulate a situation. She was taking the woman who she had taken in as her daughter and ensuring that their family line could continue, that Naomi's husband's line would continue and that Ruth could have a husband. So what she's doing is actually full of love and kindness, even if it feels a bit weird to us. And Naomi's been doing her research. We saw in chapter two that she recognizes who Boaz is. She recognized that he is a redeemer. That means he's part of the family and that he could be the answer to this problem. Naomi came back from Moab hungry and full of bitterness. Now she is fed and there's a new hope starting to brew in her. There's a potential answer. She can see a way for this situation to be remedied. Not only is there a man who is a redeemer who could marry Ruth, but he's met Ruth and he was really nice to her. And that seems like a good thing, right? It's definitely a win. So Naomi starts to form this plan. I don't know how she knew that Boaz was gonna be on the threshing floor that night. I assume that there was some Facebook stalking going on, you know, what, looking through Instagram, seeing what his story said. But she knows where he's gonna be and she needs to make sure that Ruth gets there too. She knows what she wants and she knows that it's to continue her and Ruth being safe and secure. It's a good plan for a good reason and she's figured out how she can make it happen. Have you ever had a plan like that? The kind of plan that sounds a bit like, I'm gonna do this and if it works, then it was God's plan. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> um, if I'm being honest, that is frequently how I act towards God's provision. 
Um, as some of you will know, over the past few months, I've been looking for a new job as my current contract was coming to an end. So I told God that I trusted him, which I do, and that I knew he had a plan for my life, which is true. And then I started applying for any random job I could find that had the word youth somewhere in the title, because I'm a youth worker, and had about three backup plans for if I couldn't find a job. I had all of the options set up around me just in case I was unemployed this summer. I didn't pray about it. I didn't ask God's wisdom on any of it. I just kind of powered on thinking, God's got it covered and I'll just do stuff and see what happens. It wasn't until I got invited to an interview that I stopped to ask God whether or not this was the right plan. And he said, no, this was not the plan. He did not want me to do this interview. I realized then that I'd been applying to jobs and coming up with these plans because I was terrified of not having a job when my contract ended. I was scared about what would happen if I didn't have an income, about what I would do for money, about where I would live. And I am the kind of person that catastrophizes quite a lot. So, you know, I went to the extremes of what would happen if I had a month where I didn't have a paycheck. I was trying to figure out the situation by my own means. Duncan mentioned in his message, I think it was the first message in this series, that it can be really hard for us to really trust God because we can always have a backup plan. In our society, in our culture, it's very rare that we are in a truly desperate situation where there is nothing we can do. What we are able to do might not be ideal or easy or you know, morally sound or legal, but there's always something that we could potentially do. And that makes it really hard to trust God sometimes. It makes it hard to throw ourselves fully into the belief that he has got a plan and we can wait for it. I'd love to tell you that after this moment of realization, my life has been completely transformed. I now trust fully in God's provision. I pray in everything, for everything, knowing that he has a plan, having faith that he is gonna bring it to fruition. That, that would be a lie. That is not what my life looks like now. But I did at least start asking God's guidance on what was going on. I scrapped all of my backup plans and started praying for God's provision, whether that was a job or something else. And I have to say, I have now got a job lined up. God came through. I start in July. I'm very excited. Um, it's a job that I really want. It's a job that I will enjoy, I hope. And it's a great answer to prayer. And God knew that was the plan. He had always got me covered, whether that was this job, a different one, or something else. But it can be really hard <laughs> to wait and to trust in God's provision. So let's go back to our story. How did Naomi react to asking for provision? She knows what she wants. She can see a plan that would work. She knows that God provides. So what does she do? Well, firstly, she tells Ruth to wash and anoint herself. I don't know much about dating, but I feel like this is pretty good dating advice. If you're going to go and meet someone and you want to impress them, potentially propose to them, make sure that you're clean and that you smell good. That, that seems pretty sound. Don't think I can give you any other dating advice, but that one you can write down and remember. It's a good start. Naomi's plan so far, I think we can all agree, pretty good. But then it gets very weird. She wants Ruth and Boaz to meet up so that they can talk about the fact that Boaz is a redeemer, presumably, so that they can see if this works as a situation. 
Now, Ruth and Boaz have met. We saw in chapter 2 that Ruth was working in his field and he spoke to her. He knows who she is. She knows who he is. We can imagine they kept bumping into each other in the field. This wasn't a one-time thing. And Naomi lives in the same town. They're pretty close together. It feels to me that there might be more convenient and conventional places to have a conversation than on a threshing floor at midnight. It seems like an odd choice. Not quite sure where Naomi was going with it. In fact, Naomi's plan isn't even for Ruth to approach Boaz and tell him the plan. Her plan, as we remember, as we just read, was she tells Ruth to hide, watch Boaz as he eats and drinks, wait for him to go to sleep, then sneak out, uncover his feet, lie down next to him, and wait for him to wake up. It's, it's weird. That is not, don't do that. Just if, if you were taking notes for advice in life, no, that's weird. Watching people when they eat, kind of creepy, especially if you're hiding somewhere. Don't do it. Sneaking in and lying down next to them whilst they're asleep. No, just no. Don't, don't, don't go there. We as an audience are baffled by what Naomi is advising Ruth to do right now. And then, just when you think it can get any worse, her instruction is do what he tells you to do. The innuendo is strong here. Ruth is to uncover this guy's feet, lie down next to him in the dark, and then do whatever he tells her in the middle of the night. I mean, we know that Boaz is a good, kind, and righteous man, but that was when he met Ruth in the day, in a field, when she was working and he was running a business. This is the middle of a night. She has got all clean and fancy and dressed up and is gonna be lying next to him in the dark. We have no idea what Naomi thought was gonna happen here. We don't know her intentions. We don't know what she thought Boaz was going to do or say for Ruth to obey. Naomi has just experienced God's abundant provision. She knows about the promise to Abraham. She knows that God has promised that he is going to provide for her. She's literally just seen it with bags and bags and bags of food to eat. So what is she doing here? Is she faithfully following a word that God has given her? Doing what she thinks is what God is instructing her? Because let's be real, God does sometimes ask us to do slightly odd things and we can obey in faith. Is she so confident that Boaz is a righteous man that she has absolutely no fear of him being tempted by Ruth in the dark? Is she dealing in the dark rather than approaching him in the day? Because Ruth, Ruth is from Moab, and this is the best way to protect both Ruth and Boaz from any rumors or gossip. Or maybe she's trying to force a situation where Boaz wakes up in the night by a beautiful woman and he sleeps with her. Maybe she's willing to risk Ruth's, risk Ruth's safety and reputation on the gamble of provision. We don't even know if Naomi has ever spoken to Boaz. She knows who he is, but the story doesn't tell us they've ever met. Maybe Naomi is just trying to make a situation that answers her own prayer. We don't know. The author doesn't tell us. We don't get to see inside Naomi's head. We just know that these are her instructions and that Ruth is obedient and faithfully goes and does them. 
So Ruth goes to the threshing floor alone in the dark. If you're not sure what a threshing floor is, essentially, I don't have an agricultural background, but from what I think I understand of it, it's where you would take your crops to sort out the grain from the chaff. So you would throw your crops up in the air, and then if you have the right level of wind, it would take away the light bits, which are the chaff, and drop the grain back down. Basically saved you picking through and taking all your grain out bit by bit. We don't know anything more about this threshing floor. We don't know how big it is. We don't know where it is. We don't know if there's anyone else there. We can probably assume there is, because Naomi tells Ruth to pay attention to where Boaz lies down. Can you imagine how awkward it would have been if Ruth had gone and lain down next to the wrong guy? In fact, not even awkward, potentially incredibly dangerous. We know that Boaz is a good guy, but I doubt everyone in town was as righteous and solid as he was. Who knows what could have happened to Ruth in that situation? She was potentially in quite a lot of danger just through making a simple mistake. So Ruth follows the instructions. She hides, waits for Boaz to have his dinner and a potential glass of wine. Not quite sure what he was eating, but he seems to be pretty happy and he goes to sleep. I like to imagine he's sleeping that really comfortable sleep where you've had a hard day at work, but you feel really good. You're tired, but in a good way. You've had a nice meal, had a little bit to drink, and you just, you know, just sleep really comfortably and deeply. And when she's sure he's asleep, she sneaks out and does what she was told. She uncovers his feet and then lies down next to him. Can you feel the tension in the story here? We've got all of our characters in position. The audience are waiting to know what is going to happen. Is Ruth going to be discovered? Is someone going to find her lying there and make up a story about what's going on? Will she be safe? When is Boaz going to wake up? Is he going to wake up in the night? And when he does, what's he going to do? How's he going to respond to this weird situation that he's in? Well, fortunately, we don't have to wait long. The passage tells us that at midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. The middle of the night is a dangerous time in stories. It's dark. It is far from dawn and far from dusk. No one is awake unless they are doing something nefarious. Everywhere is empty. Everywhere is deserted. We don't necessarily have this in quite the same way now because of you know, electric lighting and the fact that shops are open till practically midnight half the time. But this is such a dangerous time. It's a time of vulnerability and fear. If you wake up in the middle of the night, you feel like something is wrong. And this is when Boaz wakes up. Not to the dawning of a bright new day, not to the sun coming up over the horizon, but to the pitch darkness of a midnight threshing floor. And he's not alone. Just take a moment to imagine that you are Boaz in this situation. You've gone to sleep, merry and content, and then you've woken up in the middle of the night because there's a cold draft around your feet. Maybe it takes you a second or two to figure out why you're awake and what's going on. You try to wriggle the covers back down to get comfy again. And then all of a sudden, you realize that there is someone next to you, someone who smells of great perfume and whose company you were not expecting. What would you do? I, for sure, would bolt. 
I would be out of there so fast, probably making a lot of noise to wake everybody else up, throwing things at the person who was lying there. I would not be cool and calm in this situation. But Boaz is. He is so calm in a crisis. He finds this woman lying next to him in the dark, and he just asks who they are. He doesn't get angry. He doesn't seem scared. He doesn't even seem that bothered by it. He just wants to know who this person is. Now, this is where Ruth goes off script. If you remember what Naomi's instructions were, she was told, when Boaz wakes up, do what he tells you to do. But that's not what Ruth does. She answers his question. She introduces herself. But she has no intention of leaving this ambiguous. She is not waiting around to see what Boaz is going to tell her to do. She immediately asks him to spread his wings over his servant, for he is a redeemer. Your translation might have something slightly different there. It might say to spread his cloak or the corner of his cover or his garment, something like that over her. But essentially, this is a symbolic gesture of creating a cover and a refuge for someone. It is creating a safe place for Ruth. Very simply, Ruth is very delicately proposing to Boaz. She's asking him to marry her because he's her redeemer. Much like Naomi, we don't know what's going through Ruth's mind here. We don't know how scared she is, whether she's completely confident. We don't know why she goes off book and follows different instructions. Maybe she's terrified that Boaz is just going to send her away in disgrace and she wants to get her intentions out quickly. Maybe she wants to make it clear that she's not there to seduce him and that she's there because he is the guy she wants to marry. Maybe she's just reminding herself what the plan is and reassuring herself that what she's doing is for a good purpose. Or maybe she's so confident in God's provision that she is making it very clear that she is not there to manipulate a situation or force Boaz into anything. She knows that God will provide. Ruth proposing to Boaz is incredibly countercultural. I know I said that even to the original audience, this was kind of out, out of culture. It wasn't something they would understand. But even to us now, this is a bit strange. Ruth is a young woman. She's a widow. She's a Moab. And she's a Moabite. And she was working in the field to get enough food to feed her and her widowed mother-in-law. Boaz seems like a very respected man in town. He has his own business. He owns the fields. He seems like a pretty good guy. The fact that this woman is proposing to him is a little bit baffling, especially as she is proposing in the middle of the night, in the dark, on a threshing floor. We aren't really sure what Boaz is thinking here, but he does not miss a beat. If that kind of, I don't do well in a crisis. If that happened to me, I think I would definitely be very flustered and talk a lot of nonsense and maybe say, let's, let's talk in the morning. <laughs> you, you go now. Bye. Um, Boaz immediately recognizes who Ruth is. We know that they've met in the fields, but he also comments that she's gaining a good reputation in the town. People in the town say that she is a worthy woman. It seems like he's been paying attention to her. He doesn't only recognize her as the woman who was in his field, who he gave some food to. He's seen her around. He knows who she is. And much to the audience, and presumably Ruth's relief, seems that he quite likes the idea of marrying her. 
He seems to be on board with this plan. In all honesty, it seems like Ruth is quite the catch. It seems like she's incredibly desirable. And in fact, Boaz commends her for not going after someone who is younger or richer than him, which seems to suggest she could have had a choice of who to marry. I'm just going to note here that it is a little bit weird that seeing as Ruth has just proposed and Boaz has said yes, he then calls her daughter a couple of times. It is a little bit strange, but I think what he's trying to do is really emphasize the fact that until they are married, he sees her as family. He's not a threat to her. He knows that there is this other, this other man who could be the person who marries her, and he doesn't want to do anything or suggest anything that could indicate him taking advantage of Ruth. By calling her daughter, he's really offering a sign of protection, of safety and reassurance to Ruth. It is an incredibly kind and simple act to put this young woman at ease and to make his intentions clear, even though he wants to marry Ruth. And I just think that's beautiful. It seems like such an odd thing to do, but what a great guy in such a weird moment, in so much chaos, to be able to reassure someone and put them at ease with just a word. Boaz confirms that he is the redeemer. At some point in the past weeks, he must have realized who Naomi and Ruth are and figured out that he's related to them somehow and that he could be the provision that he's praying for for them. And yet he hasn't stepped up. Boaz hasn't come forward as a redeemer. This leaves us as an audience wondering why. Why has he not done something about this? Why has he let these two women be widowed and hungry and figuring out what's going on in their lives when he could have fixed this on day one? Maybe he's actually reluctant to marry Ruth. Maybe he's not that into her. Or maybe he's a bit worried about the cost of being a redeemer. Having your firstborn son be the son of another man seems like it might be quite complicated as a thing to, to live with. Maybe he's waiting to see if Ruth really is as worthy and as good as she seems, just waiting to get a bit more intel on her. Maybe he's just shy about talking to women and isn't quite sure how to approach them. But we very quickly find out none of this is the case. Boaz has not approached them because he knows there is another closer redeemer. There is another man who has a stronger claim to take Ruth as his wife. And Boaz has not wanted to step in before it is his time. Boaz has such integrity here. He could so easily have pretended he didn't know about this guy. I mean, the other guy hasn't come forward. He might not be aware that he could redeem um, Ruth. He might not even know the situation is happening. Boaz could just have pretended that he didn't know about him, agreed to marry Ruth, and then later been like, oh no, too late now, we're married. I guess it's all worked out well in the end. But he doesn't. He could have been the hero of his own story. He could have swept in and saved the girl. He could have been the answer to the prayer that he was praying for them. He could have married the woman that he was attracted to. But he doesn't. Boaz trusts God's plan and provision and wants to ensure that things are done properly and in the light. Agreeing to marry Ruth whilst in the dark on the threshing floor would not have been a thing of integrity when he knew there was another man out there. He decides to wait until this can be sorted out properly and done in the right order. I'm going to leave you in suspense there as to what happens between Boaz and the other redeemer. I guess you'll just have to come back next week to find out. 
Um, but today we have seen three people respond to God's provision in their lives. Ruth, Naomi and Boaz have experienced firsthand how abundantly God provides for his people. And yet we're still not clear on how fully they trust that God will continue to provide for them. It's easy to trust God's plans and purposes when we're in a moment of receiving provision. And as a family, we have some incredible stories of us together and individually receiving God's provision. You only have to look around this venue to see a massive answer to prayer and God's incredibly abundant provision. And I know that among us, there are stories of jobs like mine, of nights where children have slept through the night after weeks and weeks of parents not getting enough sleep of healing, of money turning up anonymously to pay bills, of people having answers to prayer, finding housemates, dealing with things on their courses. God provides for us all. And if you have stories about God's provision, please share them with us. We love to hear them. They are a great reminder to us that God is providing for us right now. And we need to remember that. And yet when we're asking and waiting for provision, is a very different story a lot of the time. It's so easy to forget all the good things that God has already done in our lives and just focus on the thing we haven't got yet or the answer that we've not yet received. How often do we try to answer our own prayer? Like I talked about with my story earlier, try to set up circumstances and backups and fail-safes or force a situation start doing something to kind of force God's hand in a situation to make him do what we want. How often do we just put our head down and plow on in the hope that God will steer us at some point? How often do we purposely stay ambiguous in the hope that it will work out one way or another and everything will be fine? How often do we choose not to do anything because we're scared and it's, it feels safer to just hide and pretend that we're waiting when really we're just immobilized by fear. Instead, how often do we look back on God's past provision in our lives and the lives of others and pray in the confidence that God loves to provide abundantly for us? How often do we choose to bring a situation out of the darkness of a midnight threshing floor so that we can act with integrity as we wait on God's provision?